The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore it. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shagoths, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover or build a god when we reach the cyber ocean floor. Claims to remember past lives, I claim to remember a different, very different present life. The psychotic drowns where the mystic swims. They're drowning. Hello and welcome to the Astral Flight Simulation Podcast, where we navigate the digital world through art and culture. And we're going to begin our discussion of the Astral Flight Simulation today with a discussion of Plato's Cave and how we have to bring Plato's Cave farther. We have to add to the analogy to characterize the mindset that civilization goes into in a post-enlightenment phase. Is it a retrogression or a regression back to a benighted stage that Plato says in his analogy of Plato's cave that we have to exit, that we have to be liberated from? Are we regressing back to that pre-enlightenment stage or are we moving on to something new? Are we moving on to a mindset that is a novel form of being asleep or being deluded, uh, being being falling victim or subject to uh, delusions that arise and present themselves uh, in different ways, and in, a, and in a way novel and distinct from earlier stages of civilization. So if you look at the trajectory, if you trace the trajectory of human consciousness from Plato's cave to beyond, whatever comes beyond, and today we're going to make an argument that the astral flight simulation is the next step in Plato's cave. But if we observe the arc of human consciousness over the course of civilization's lifespan, we see that we go from a pre-rational to a rational and then a post-rational state, or from a dark age to an age of enlightenment to an age of what Nick Lamb refers to as a dark enlightenment, a regression or a slide away from rationalism back into superstition or mythological religious thinking. Nick Land wants us to get ahead of it because he says enlightenment is what lead, led us to progressivism and democracy and that these things require a zombie horde of indoctrinated people to accept and he defines neo-reaction as a rejection of these things. But whether we want to embrace rationalism or embrace its rejection, I contend that a dark enlightenment is upon us either way. That people are reverting to a consciousness that resembles pre-rational thinking, acceptance of dogma and established traditional ways of thought without questioning. We hear all the time that we are in a post-truth era and that we need fact-checkers now to make sure people are thinking the correct things. Couple this with the ongoing transfer of all human knowledge onto the cloud and the outsourcing of skills to both the third world and to technology, I believe that we are living in a future dark age. And in order to get a better perspective on the this slide into the dark enlightenment and what this new era might look like, and the cultural forms that this new era may give rise to, it's probably best to trace Plato's cave from the exiting of the cave into the light of enlightenment as Plato has it, and then the the uh, turning away from the sun and turning away from the light of enlightenment and regressing back into the dark enlightenment, which is where we're going now. So most people are probably familiar with Plato's cave. The, the, the basic concept goes like this is that uh, you awaken, you somehow become aware, uh, you, become, you become conscious of the fact that everything you thought was reality 
was actually an illusion. According to Plato, of course, the reason the subject was able to be so easily deluded by all these, uh, by this grand charade is because of his senses, because of the five senses, because of your sense perception. And that, according to Plato in this, this analogy, your sense perception is, uh, is inferior to your rationality. And the best way to experience the world and to assess the world and to navigate the world, according to Plato and Socrates, is uh, through your rational rationality and your rational faculty and your mind. And that uh, your concepts that your mind is able to grasp are a higher reality than the physical reality around you and the physical world around you. But also tradition and religion are considered inferior, according to Plato and Socrates, to rationality. And Plato comes up with the concept of the forms, and the forms are these transcendent, pure realities that exist outside the material plane, that they are higher than the material plane, and you can only access them with your mind. And you're only able to access them using uh, rationalism and the Socratic dialogues and, uh, and the entire project of Plato, really. The Socratic dialogue and Socratic dialectics is a way to use your mind to sort of walk yourself out of your delusions and to walk yourself out of Plato's cave and into the light of enlightenment. And the, the true sun will, uh, will illuminate the real world for you as opposed to the simulation of the fireplace and the puppets and the shadows. So if you read uh, the Socratic dialogues, you see uh, Socrates' uh, discourse with people and his dialectics is a way to sort of uh, show people, to, to help the people that he's in, contact, in discussion with wake up to the fact that they are being deluded by both their senses but also by tradition and by religion. One thing that always stuck with me from Socrates is when he's... Uh, sort of making a fool of one of his interlocutors as he is wont to do. He says, why does it rain? And the person he's discussing, I forget which one this was now, the person he's talking with says, well, because the gods make it rain. And then Socrates says, well, if the gods make it rain, why does it only rain when there are clouds in the sky? Because if the gods made it rain, of course, um, it would rain whether there were clouds or not. And you can see how, and of course, the person he's talking to has some answer that Socrates doesn't accept, and the conversation goes on. Now, all of his dialogues are like this, because he's basically asking you, why are you believing in uh, what you believe? And the answer usually is because, well, because that's what people believe, because that's what tradition has taught me, because that's what, uh, that's what religion says. And Plato wants to walk you out of this, and he wants to build a society and a civilization around rationalism and uh, deduction and reasoning. And this is called the Greek Enlightenment, and this is considered the highest form of uh, Greek life. Uh, this, is, this is generally considered by historians to be uh, the pinnacle, and it's considered to be a, a period of time uh, during the classical world of, uh, of ascension. However, there are counters to that. There are people who say that it's actually a time of decadence and a devolution and the start of a decline. Uh, especially of Athens and of Greece. And of course, very soon after Plato and Socrates were working, Greece, uh, the Athenian democracy as we know it, no longer existed because they were conquered by Alexander the Great. Nietzsche in particular, I believe it's in his book, The Twilight of the Idols, he says that the 
democratic rationalistic phase of Greece is actually a late stage and it's actually the beginning of their decline. And one perspective on the classical world is that the Greek Dark Ages were like the early, uh, according to Plato, it would be the deluded phase where people were living in the myths and the myths uh, of the Iliad and the Odyssey and all the Greek myths and the Greek pantheon were reality for these people. So the ontology that these people were embedded in, the ontology, and ontology just means everything that you believe exists in the world. All the things that make up reality are your ontology. And the ontology in a dark age uh, is a mythical ontology. So that the gods actually, at the, 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 the transcendent realm and the material realm, the world of the gods and the world of man are actually fused together. They're actually one cosmological whole and that you're able to interact with the divine at all times and that in fact the divine is uh is sort of dictating the actions that go on and when you read the iliad it becomes quite obvious because gods come down and they speak to achilles and they tell him what to do in this particular case it's a goddess uh, and tells achilles what to do and helps him make his decision which actually of course eventually affects the outcome of the the trojan war and, um, you know, sometimes when the gods are not interested in the Greeks at the time, they, they come into battle and they get into a furious battle and all of a sudden the gods become interested. They catch the gods' attention and they win the gods' favor because of their, their action and their heroism and valor in battle. And the gods then come down and they determine the course of the battle. Um, and in theory, if you were to ask a Greek of that time, where do the gods live, they don't, they don't give you some uh, complicated... Uh, rationalistic explanation about where heaven is and about how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. Of course, they don't. They don't give you some sort of explanation about some abstracted, distant realm of some uh, formless, shapeless being who people disagree on what he looks like exactly. No, they point to Mount Olympus and what you can see from the city. Uh, and they point to Mount Olympus and say, over there, that's where the gods live. And they say, okay, well, uh, okay, so what about uh, the sea? Which god lords over the sea? And they say, well, it's Poseidon. Where does Poseidon live? Uh, uh, he lives under the sea, and he he dictates the seas, and if it's if it pleases him, our ships will make it across the sea. And if we make him angry, uh, he will subject us to a storm. So in that sense, you can see that this transcendent realm that permeates the material realm, this higher reality, according to them, according to the religious purview, religious man's experience of reality, this higher reality exists sort of uh, layered on top of or enmeshed with the material material reality, and it dictates the goings-on in material reality. And this is exactly what Plato and Socrates say we have to get out of. We have to uh, ascend, we have to wake up, and we have to move ourselves out of a dark age, and we have to use rationalism instead of brute force and belief in God and sort of praying to gods to give us the outcome we want, um, and, and warfare and things like that. No, we have now moved to a higher phase in which... Uh, Enlightened men use uh, rhetoric and discourse in order to determine the fate of mankind. And uh, God, which once permeated reality, is now removed from us. It's now abstracted from our experience and up in another different realm that is inaccessible by the material plane. And this is a materialistic worldview. 
The rational worldview is a rational world. Uh, uh, excuse me. The rational worldview is a materialistic worldview because the rational worldview holds that the things that go on, that ontology does not go beyond the material, and that the things that go on in the world are determined only by uh, material factors and one force acting upon another force to bring out a third uh, outcome. Uh, so we can consider there to be uh, material tension within reality that sort of drives history forward or that sort of drives uh, human endeavors forward. And that tension can be anything from strife, internecine warfare, uh, civilizations bumping up against each other, different cultures bumping up against each other, and one absorbs another uh, because it's superior in warfare or superior in cunning. Well, like I was trying to explain in a previous era in a previous era this would be because one of the groups is favored by the gods but in an enlightened era it would be because one of the groups has access to more natural resources and one of the groups has better warfare technology etc 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 so human the fate of humanity is determined by uh, rationalism and material reality and material circumstances and the way we interact with those but i digress uh plato's cave so the idea is that you're awakening from this, uh, like I said, this pre-rational benighted state in which you're embedded in the world to realize that you're actually diluting your, excuse me, you're actually deluding yourself and that the whole society is deluded into believing that all these gods exist all around and that this, uh, this magical realm is determining the fate of reality when in fact it's, uh, you know, environmental processes that are taking place and it's, uh, civiliz it's the civilizational... Um, merits that are actually de determining and dictating the course of people's lives. So, of course, the Enlightenment era in both Greek and uh, Western Europe in the 1700s are sort of a deconstruction of the previous world. It's a sort of a tearing down. That's the thing about rationalism. That's why Nietzsche says rationalism is nihilistic, because it's a tearing down of the entire cosmology created by the earlier phase of the civilization. But Plato's cave evokes only one step in the process of the development of the civilizational mindset of the consciousness of society. And it needs to be gone beyond because it ends with uh, the subject walking out into the light of enlightenment and discovering the reality of the higher forms and discovering the true higher reality. But um, it's not all positive and does not all have positive effects for individuals and for society as a whole because as i said very soon after this concept was was deployed alexander the great came along and took over athens and as i said exiting plato's cave and uh, waking up to the pre-rational situation uh, of delusion that you find yourself in is done through rhetoric and it's done through dialectics and of course when alexander uh, the son of philip of macedon was uh rallying his forces and beginning to to unleash the phalanx this new formation of military uh, technology and this new uh, highly dangerous highly effective form of military formation uh, and he was going to deploy it on the in the field and he had already used it a couple times and the Greeks saw how powerful it was and um, all the city-states had to come together all these rational enlightened men the senators and the the leaders of civilization of all the different greek city-states had to come together and decide how to deal with this threat and to take decisive action quickly but they never did that 
They just spent the whole time debating on what they should do, and each person was presenting their argument, and then the next person would present a counter-argument. And this went on until Alexander came down and easily swept over the entire Peloponnese and absorbed them into the Hellenistic Empire. Now, this is just one way to show you the folly, or at least not, if not the folly, the, the lifespan of uh, enlightenment and, and how far you can go with this sort of thing. You have to actually go beyond rationalism. You have to go beyond rational discourse in order to get anything done in the world. And my argument is that you actually create a, a sort of a new sort of prison, a new sort of conscious prison uh, for yourself. Once you escape the cave, you, you, you leave the, the, the stone walls of the cave, of uh, the pre-rational cave that you're stuck in, in the world of delusion that you're in, to some new form of delusion, some conceptual delusion, some conceptual framework that your consciousness gets stuck in. And you believe, you begin to believe the delusions of your consciousness, of your rationality, uh, and and you are just like you were before, you are now stuck uh, in uh, the the limits of this uh, perspective and, the, and of this mindset. And uh, one of the limits you see here is played out in stark fashion with the way the, the Athenians were unable to rise to this external threat in which their rationalism wasn't completely unable to prevent or to save them from. Now, one of the ways to look at this, this process of coming out of the cave and going into the light of sunlight and into the light of enlightenment and sort of waking up to the delusions of religion and tradition and your sense perceptions, one way to look at this is to say that you're getting a bird's eye view of reality. In a developed, complex civilization like they had, they were able to uh, uh, overcome the limitations of their environment, and they were over able to overcome the limitations of, say, warfare and, say, external threats that might uh, stymie or arrest the development of a, of a culture or a civilization at a certain point before they're able to remove themselves in this way. So what I mean by that is that uh, if you are at the mercy of your senses and you are at the mercy of uh, environmental factors, you're sort of living in the world and you are not quite so removed from nature. Your existence uh, is dependent upon what you're able to uh, uh, produce from the soil and your your structures and the, the living environment you're, you're living in or what you're able to dig out of the soil or cut down from the timber and the forest around you. It's a, it's a local sort of uh, focused existence to your immediate area. And it takes a long time for a civilization to build themselves up out of that. And that uh, if you're drought, if there's a drought one year or there's heavy storms uh, and, it, and it compromises your crops, you uh, cannot go on to do any of the higher faculties or the higher functions of civilization because you're stuck in this, um, what we might call a hard scrabble existence, or even if you enjoy some form of comfort, you still don't have the extra produce that you need that is necessary to, uh, to start building institutions and to start building reserves. So you're still at the mercy of nature and at the mercy of your stronger neighbors who, you know, if they make war upon you, you're unable to move your civilization forward into developing different institutions. Whereas, in a, and that is that is a more uh, rural, agrarian existence, and uh, if you're able to overcome that and move into the next phase into a more urban, civilizational existence like the Athenians did, 
you're able to build up supplies and you're able to build up a stock or you're able to secure uh, resources from farther away because Athens at this time had become an empire and you're able to secure resources from farther away so that you're no longer subject to the mercy of nature for the crops at that time. Uh, if you have a crop failure, you have a province elsewhere that may be producing just as much or if not more grain and you can bring that grain in and you can bring those animal products in and you can keep your civilization going and you're no longer subjected to uh, the negative consequences of nature and you also are able to use that surplus to build up an army and that way you're able to fend off attackers or you're able to take over your neighbors and you can then absorb their resources into yourself and that's how you start uh, building um, institutions and you start building a more a more solid and stable environment a more st solid and stable uh, civilization and that gives certain people in your civilization the freedom and the leisure to develop their mind and to develop these elaborate and complicated forms of thought. And religion goes through a similar process of abstraction, that the world that we live in that is permeated, this cosmology that encapsulates both the transcendent realm and our realm that exist in the same space as each other, they become separated. And now the divine uh, and the sacred is no longer something that we live, that we experience. It's something that we can only access through our minds. And that material reality becomes, in this condition, a higher reality. And the reality of the gods, which was once uh, a lived experience right next to us and something we experience in our day-to-day -day lives and something that actually dictated our fate and dictated our day-to-day -day experiences, now becomes something that is inaccessible to us that is not experienced in the in the material world that we live in but it's something that we can only access through our minds it becomes a concept it becomes a concept that is only accessible through rational thought so plato's forms therefore are pure thought they're pure concept that any example of a circle or a triangle that you meet in the world is not the real circle or the real triangle or the ultimate shape the ultimate shape and the true shape is an idea in your mind that you are only able to access or at least approximate through your mind. Now, it's very similar. I want to quickly, before I come to the, uh, the, the conclusion here, I've been talking about the Greeks this whole time. Now, all of this can be applied to uh, Western civilization and modern civilization and the uh, European Enlightenment because they all have an analogy. They all have an equivalent to everything that Plato and the Greeks went through. So the idea that the forms are the ultimate reality can be likened unto Descartes, who says that uh, the only way that I can be sure that I exist is because I'm thinking, that the highest reality is my thought and my faculty of thought. And Kant... Uh, a German working after Descartes sort of uh, adds to this when he says that the thing in itself cannot be fully accessed in, in its totality. That the thing in itself, that anything removed from our body or anything removed from our consciousness can only be understood in, uh, in, in an approximation and in an incomplete sense. That we are unable to uh, totally experience the world outside of our mind. We are t unable to be fully immersed in the world outside of our mind, and we can't even believe, according to, to this line of thinking, to Descartes and, thought, and Kant, we can't even be certain that any of it is, is real at all, except our thoughts, and that thought is the highest form of consciousness, and that the Enlightenment 
the European Enlightenment and the world that it's created uh, is, is heavily based on math and physics and that the reality that takes place in front of us and what we see play out in reality is only like a shadow, like a shadow in Plato's cave of uh, the higher reality. And the higher reality is a concept and a form that we can only access through our mind and through our rational processes, which of course in the scientific worldview is mathematics. And mathematics are the only way for us to get at that. Now, uh, so what I argue is that once you exit Plato's cave, you're exiting, you're escaping from prison, you're escaping from the prison that your senses and your sense perception have uh, built up around you, you then walk into what eventually becomes another prison, and it's a prison of concepts, and it's a prison of thought, thought forms, and your mind gets trapped in these concepts, and you are now... Before, when you were in the cave, you were unable to use your mind to bring yourself out and get the bird's eye view that I said that Plato's cave requires and that the Enlightenment requires. You're unable to be removed from your experience and your reality and get this bird's eye view and use this rational, uh, use your rationality to uh, form a picture of the world. But then you get trapped in that picture of the world and you are now no longer able to immerse yourself or completely interact with the world around you. And you fall victim to things like, well, Alexander the Great coming to take your civilization over. Uh, your institutions begin to collapse because the institutions that you're able to build to perpetuate your society then uh, become captured by bureaucracy. And the bureaucracy is, of course, the concepts upon which those institutions are built. And you can no longer get outside uh, those concepts, you can no longer overcome the bureaucracy to keep the institutions running. And the institutions begin to collapse and they begin to get captured uh, by the bureaucrats. And the bureaucrats are not the people who can actually do the work of running the institutions. The bureaucrats are the, only the people who are able to conceptualize. Now, a good modern example of this is warfare, of course. And warfare is a good ancient example as well because it's a perpetual example. Uh, if you look at Vietnam and Afghanistan, America lost the wars in Vietnam and lost the wars in Afghanistan. And one of the reasons uh, a lot of people, a lot of hawkish people and a lot of military people say is because the actual soldiers and the actual uh, you know, military leadership who are on the ground experiencing the war as a lived experience had to defer to the bureaucrats and the politicians who who knew it only as a conceptual experience. They could not perpetrate the war based only on their concepts. They were unable to come over overcome the reality on the ground and they were unable to defeat their foe in the field because they relied on their concepts. Now, um, today's episode and the, the rest of today's episode is actually going to be about science fiction and the way science fiction traces... Uh, can be used uh, a, a, as a mythology of the modern world and of our technological era and of our technological epoch. Because if we have to go beyond Plato's cave, what we have to do is see uh, what this conceptual world looks like, this conceptual prison looks like. We have to come up with a new metaphor. It's no longer a prison of rock and stone. And the light and the shadows and the illumination, uh, excuse me, the illusions are not being uh, we're not being subjected to them because of a fireplace and because of a of a puppet master. Uh, the The world that these concepts create for us is a technological world. Or in in Greece's time, a good way to describe it is to use uh, Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick says that we are trapped in the iron prison, 
and he became very interested in uh, religious concepts and he became very interested in the divine and the sacred and he started to see his work as a revelation he started to think his work was a revelation and one of the things that he uh, became awakened to or he believed he became awakened to was that he himself and and the world around him all the people around him were trapped in the iron prison and the and he called it the iron prison and the iron prison was like a a a a conceptual prison of thought forms that totalitarian governments like to use and he likened the American government to both the communists and to Nazi Germany and the way that they forced mind control and they forced you to believe in a rigid set of beliefs that they imparted upon you and uh, Philip K. Dick tried to say that America too was stuck in an iron prison and I like this metaphor I like this metaphor better uh, to talk about the the conceptual prison we're in than the cave because the iron prison evokes the image of an urban world of a, of a highly urbanized society with uh, steel and glass skyscrapers and, and everything that comes along with that like the propaganda the televisual propaganda and the media and the way that uh, tries to indoctrinate you into believing in ideology and it's like once you're surrounded by this infrastructure, this urban iron prison, and all the billboards and the televisual media that comes along with a technological civilization like ours, you're now no longer able to reaccess uh, nature. You're no, no longer able to physically or mentally get out of the iron prison and reaccess nature and uh, a, a pre-civilizational state where your interaction with the world and your your encounter with the world was unmediated by civilization, by concepts, by technology. And uh, this is kind of where I'm coming to the the next step of Plato's cave, where you move from uh, a religious traditional world of the cave, and then you wake up to that and you walk out into the light of enlightenment and the outside world and the true forms and the true nature. And then you get stuck in the concepts uh, of rationalism, and then you cannot go beyond that. Society cannot go beyond that and become stymied and bogged down. Uh, one of the catch-all terms for all this would be ideology, or of course it would be propaganda, and that the society that you've built with uh, these concepts and that with, these, with this ideology that you've instilled upon the populace, they get trapped in that. And of course, the powers that be, the puppet masters in this case, want to manipulate people into believing propaganda and ideology more than they believe the things that they see that are going on right in front of their eyes. They want to create a false reality so that when you see what you see on the television and what your leaders and the powers that be tell you is what's happening, you believe prior to believing uh, the reality that you see around you. And they, they certainly do not want you to use your rational faculties at all to interpret reality. They want you to use uh, the concept that they instill upon you and the ideology that they instill into you. And um, we are now in a much even more highly technological society than when Philip K. Dick was talking, and I don't think the Iron Prison goes far enough because I feel we are deeper into the abstractions and deeper into the ideology and propaganda than we were even then even when Philip K. Dick was talking, and that we have moved into a new sort of prison, a new sort of Plato's cave, and that would be the digital prison. That would be the digital Plato's cave. This is uh, the astral flight simulation because the 
the uh, propaganda and the ideology all around us is coming at us now. Uh, it's totally ubiquitous amongst our society. It's coming at us through televisual media, as it did before, as it did in, in Philip K. Dick's uh, prior prior time when he was working. Uh, but it is now permeating our society completely with everybody on their smartphone and everybody online and everybody having an identity online in social media in particular. Uh, they go on Facebook, they go on Twitter, and they go on Instagram. And that avatar that they are presenting to the world and that avatar that is interacting with the world is uh, perhaps becoming something that these people to believe is more them than uh, they are themselves and that the reality that plays out on the screen and the way that that reality is uh, explained to you and the way that that ideology excuse me that that reality is presented to you by those doing so uh, can create uh a conceptual prison unlike any that we've ever seen before and that it can sow doubt about the world in a way that uh, was never possible before and that we are now wholly immersed within it's like we've walked back into now uh, a new plato's cave a new digital cave uh, a digital prison and one way to think about this digital prison um it it's not quite a real place yet. We're not actually physically in any sort of digital prison as opposed to, you know, if you think about Plato's cave, it's a good metaphor because it's show, you know, humans actually did used to live in caves and they used to live deep in the forest and they used to live far out of nature, uh, isolated from one another. When you came out of that, you went into society and into civilization and into an urban landscape. And, uh, the, the Iron Prison is also a pretty apt metaphor in the sense that uh, living in a big city, and he, Philip K. Dick uh, was living in Berkeley, and you're living in the Bay Area, this highly urbanized area that very far removed from nature, and you're surrounded by the steel girders of the city and of civilization. It's quite an apt metaphor. Uh, now, the digital prison, it's not totally complete yet. It's not completely come to fruition in the sense that we are not truly living inside uh, of of this uh, digital universe, uh, what, what we are is it's, it's starting to encroach upon reality. The digital world is starting to overtake reality. And our belief and our interaction with the, the hyper-reality, what John Baudrillard calls the hyper-reality, and that's the sum total of all televisual media, uh, it's starting to become more real to us than our reality. We want to present ourselves uh, through our Instagram f filter prior to presenting ourselves uh, to to each other in real life. Uh, we want to present ourselves in our in our idealized form on our dating site before we actually go out and meet a real human being. Um, so it's starting to overtake the reality uh, of our lived experience, as I was saying before. But it may perhaps be coming to, to fruition uh, that the digital prison is becoming more of an apt metaphor than it seems right now if something like the metaverse were to take off because the metaverse is still in its infant stages and it looks like the graphics are pretty, uh, pretty subpar. They don't even hold up to even the worst video games uh, right now. And not only that, but... Um, People who are online a lot and use their... The, the average human being, the average American or the average Westerner does use their cell phone quite a lot and they are spend a lot of time online. But there's still... Their interaction with uh, media and with uh, video technology is still limited 
to a large degree. And when you compare it to someone like a like a programmer or a video game enthusiast, there the amount of time they spend online is still far less and far removed from the amount of time a, a person like that spends online, uh, a gamer, if you will. But uh, so to expect the average person to really immerse themselves and spend that much time online on the metaverse. Uh, it's yet to see if that's going to happen, but we can already see the way it's laid out as as actually the digital prison itself coming to reality, uh, coming into being. Because in in the sense of the metaverse, if you th- if you think about it just for a second, how possible it could be? Perhaps if they could. Uh, enhance the tech just a little bit and make the graphics a little bit better and make it all happen in real time uh, and, and, and increase the sense experience, the sensory experience. Because, of course, you have to go online. When you go online, you're having this conceptual experience, all right? You're having this uh, experience inside your own head. And in order to make it real, you have to actually go out into the real world and interact with people. Uh, You look at your picture. You look at the picture of uh, someone of the opposite sex or someone of the same sex, someone you want to have sex with or food that you want to eat. In order to make that real, you still have to log off and go get the food. You still have to log off and go meet with that other person in what is being called meat space. Uh, But with... If the technology evolves just a little bit in the next couple of years, it is conceivable that the metaverse could be a place that you could spend all of or the majority of your time on. And that if you work from home, uh, this whole move of working from home is really a big push into the digital prison. Because if you work from home, you can wake up, you can put your metaverse glasses on, you can put your metaverse glasses on your children, and then uh, uh, your children go to school. Right. They quote unquote go to school and you quote unquote go to work, but you have your uh, virtual reality goggles on. And then uh, while you're in the metaverse, you can have this uh, pretend interaction with another person where you're like ordering food at, say, the work cafeteria. But what you're really doing is ordering delivery on, say, Grubhub or something. And that person comes and delivers it. But you're you're you have your metaverse goggles on and it looks like you're maybe uh, being served in a restaurant, but you're really getting home delivery from Grubhub and you eat that food. And then that sense experience is coupled with the conceptual televisual experience of being on the metaverse. And you can extrapolate this out much farther. Think about the movie uh, uh, Blade Runner 2049, the sex scene where he brings a prostitute in and then the computer superimposes his fake uh, digital digital hyper-real girlfriend in real space over the girlfriend, uh, over the prostitute. So imagine if uh, you're married you know, and you want to make love to your wife and you're both wearing the, the metaverse goggles. And, uh, you know, you're having sex with your wife or your husband in real life, but in the metaverse, you're having sex with a superstar or a supermodel. This was always the, the promise of virtual reality uh, ever since the 90s. Ever since the Internet got uh, deployed upon the population, the possibilities of uh, virtual reality have been discussed and explored. And perhaps with the metaverse, we are now seeing uh, the possibility of this really coming to be. Uh, We'll have to see. And now we're going to end part one of today's episode. We're going to uh, hearken to part two in which I trace this this experience, this trajectory of civilization, because I was saying how uh, 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 Plato's cave is sort of like a, a, a tracing of the trajectory of people out of the dark ages and out of nature and into history and into an enlightened age. And it's the, 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 the walking out of the cave sort of emulates uh, the movement of civilization from 
uh, being immersed in nature in small clans and uh, uh, animistic religious civilization or re- religious uh, pre-civilization, really, and developing into civilization and into uh, the way that civilization can be developed enough to allow for rational thought and rational thinking to kind of take hold. But then that traps people and they get trapped in their conceptual prison, what Philip K. Dick was calling the iron prison. And then there's a devolution back into some sort of uh, pre-rational state of being trapped first in nature and subject to your senses. And now you're trapped in your in your concepts. Uh, and the, the, the going from uh, the world of enlightenment, the, the awakened world of enlightenment outside of Plato's cave and the trajectory into the digital prison was also traced by mythology. And the mythology of the space age and the mythology of the digital age, and I would, what I would say is the mythology of the technological society, is science fiction. And if we kind of pick up on a thread and sort of do a genealogy of what I'm calling digital age sci-fi, in which the, the primary antagonist is artificial intelligence, uh, we are sort of able to see civilization walking itself out of enlightenment and out of the iron prison and out of the world of reality and into the world of the concepts and being trapped in the digital prison. So science fiction is a mythology both of how we relate to uh, technology on a societal scale, but also warnings about technology. Um, well, it doesn't start out as a warning, though, right? It, be, it starts out as like a utopian vision uh, about a pro- the promise of technology, of how technology is going to affect us and how it's going to change society and improve, improve human life. And over time, I have perceived a darkening pessimism uh, within science fiction, really as a whole. So to take you through first the genealogy of the, the, uh, but in in a very brief sense, um, I'd like to someday flesh it all out more specifically. Frederick Jameson has done so uh, in his book on science fiction. The names are eluding me now. Uh, He he misses a lot, but it's, it's worth looking into, where... Uh, we start out in a pre-technological sense, uh, where technology um, is kind of, kind of. Not, I don't want to say static, but technology up until the 1900s was uh, it was building up. It was building up. It wasn't really. It hadn't really flourished and come into its own completely. We kept making new discoveries, and we kept inventing new things, and we kept uh, utilizing old technologies to do more and more things until the 20th century, when there was like a great leap forward with technology. 
So the early days of science fiction were really like terrestrial science fiction, and it was uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Journey to the Center of the Earth, several other stories that are just about uh, uh, going to Antarctica and finding a, a colony under underground there, or um, you know going underwater and exploring the ocean. Around the World in 80 Days is another one. And all these are basically like using existing technology to explore the Earth, and that's all we were doing before the world wars with technology. I mean, other things were coming along too, like like germ theory and, and medical technology and stuff like that. But again, that too didn't really flourish until the 20th century. And then after the world wars, we had this big boom in technology and technolo- technology that started being developed during the world wars and used for warfare was kind of unleashed upon the populace. And it was used in, in, positive, in a lot of positive ways. I mean, you have the um, atom bomb, which was a, a big negative, but... Overall, uh, society was optimistic about about technology. So not only were we telling ourselves that we're going to use our technology to do all these things to liberate ourselves, like the washing machine was going to liberate us from uh, housework and the, the automobile was going to liberate us from being isolated and, and it was going to give us more uh, economic opportunity and things such, such as that. Our, our science fiction was also very optimistic. So you, um, a good example would be like Isaac Asimov. And then later into the Dune um, stories, and I would say probably culminating with Star Wars, you have this, uh, what I'm going to call like the space opera genre. This is uh, space age science fiction. And it was also a very optimistic time for science fiction in which uh, not just the world was our oyster, but the entire universe was our oyster. And the backdrop of these stories was like we had colonized all of space and we had we had different um, outposts on all different planets, and we had uh, our population was thriving on all these different planets. Uh, Star Trek is another good example where, like, the theme of Star Trek is to go out and uh, seek out new frontiers, and they're they're sort of like bringing space into into our uh, human uh, societal orbit, just like we were settling the frontier of the West. Now we're settling space and making it hospitable for humankind to live in. You have the Foundation uh, stories by Isaac Asimov in which, like, the huge intergalactic battles are happening throughout the planets because it's like it's like a past tense. It's like a, it's like a given in those stories that we've already achieved space. We've already accomplished that. We've already reached for the stars and made them ours. Same thing with Dune. Dune is far in the future, and uh, Star Wars. I think those three stories are kind of all in the same like genealogy, like the the space opera, where we have already taken over space and we have already used our technology to make other planets our home. Uh, but there's another genre of science fiction that started to creep in and started to to have its uh, kind of its prehistory during the space age science fiction, and I think. This third type of science fiction is what is flourishing now, and I think uh, this is what we're going to concern ourselves with today, because you have what I'm calling the digital age science fiction. So in the terrestrial age science fiction, people were using recognizable uh, craft to explore the Earth in in a giant balloon or a submarine or a drill to go underground. I had to mention um, H.P. Lovecraft, right? This culminates in H.P. Lovecraft. I feel like the end of terrestrial science fiction is is H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, especially his story uh, at the Mountains of Madness, right? Where we go to, like, the very last unexplored part of the pl- of the planet, and we find monsters and civilizations there. And then we transition to space-age science fiction, and people are flying in these, you know, souped-up, super intergalactic spaceships that are being powered by things that we recognize. Uh, f- regular fuel, or in Star Trek, I know they, they use nuclear power, right? Because it was going to be the nuclear age. 
and it was just like abundant uh, source of energy, and they used that to power their ships to go to go across the uh, galaxy. But during digital age science fiction, uh, the the technology used changes, and and a lot of that stuff goes away. It disappears. Um, spaceships aren't really important anymore, and it even gets to the point where first spaceships and like space travel kind of gets like sh- second shrift, and it's sort of like it's sort of like an afterthought or like a, a footnote in the story where the main action happens on planet Earth, and the main action happens with the interaction between humans and either artificial intelligence or humans and uh, other humans fighting over the digital realm. Digital age uh, science fiction, when that was ascending, right, space age science fiction started to to go on the downturn, and the optimism started to morph into and darken into this pessimism, whereas I would say digital age science fiction has always been pretty pessimistic overall, and I think, and I'll give you some examples in a minute, but I think that reflects the general attitude society had towards technology because the technology got to the point where it wasn't delivering the promises that we told ourselves it was going to be delivering to us. Uh, uh, the utopia that we thought we were going towards uh, wasn't wasn't panning out. And not only that, but the technology that we were supposed to keep uh, innovating and innovating and innovating kind of stopped innovating and it kind of stopped, uh, we stopped producing technology that was, uh, you know, 10 times faster than what was before it. Um, the whole Ray Kurzweil thing, that technology is on this curve, right? And by, you get to whatever it was, 2050, we're going to be, we're going to be in a transhuman uh, world. I think he came out with this in the 80s. And I think it's uh, totally bunk at this point. Because sure, we can say we can do all these things now, right? We cloned a sheep and we have all this genetic enhancement and uh, uh, bionic humans. We can we can make a bionic human arm that connects to your brain. And who knows, maybe that stuff is still on the horizon. But enough time has gone by that uh, technology hasn't really delivered on its promises. And, and we're sort of stuck and using our technology kind of uh, for day-to-day things like making video games and and uh, having more and more powerful computers, basically turning it all technology into like a consumer product. And it's no longer really delivering uh, the utopian promises that it said that it was going to. And I think that's reflected in science fiction. So when I say uh, digital age science fiction is on the ascent and uh, space age science fiction is on the decline, what I mean is just during the time that digital age sci-fi is uh, coming into its own, and sort of expressing itself to its full potential, space-age science fiction is no longer concerned with the things it was concerned for. You're no longer seeing stories. I mean, here and there you are seeing stories of uh, uh, conquering other planets or, or defeating uh, an alien race in an intergalactic war. Uh, but if you do see that now, it's just a rehash of the old stories. The new stories are telling us that space is scary and that space is not a place we want to go, and that when we do go there, we're, we encounter horrors that we wish we never unlocked and that we never uh, set our eyes upon, and we flee back to the Earth. And you could see this over and over again. I'll just quickly go through it. In 1979, you have the movie Alien, where this ship goes super far out into the space, into space, and it picks up this like parasite. It picks up this life form, this huge murderous insect that no human being is, is a match for, even if you shoot it, it shoots acid blood on you, so it still kills you. And they, they're fleeing back to the Earth, uh, and, the, and the thing picks everybody apart, and anyone, uh, only one person escapes with their life. 
Um, so, so space becomes this place of horror. Then uh, fast forward to Event Horizon, which I was talking about recently in 1997. It's the same thing. Uh, they go. It's kind of a retelling of, of a similar similar retelling of a similar story, where they go far out into the space into space. They encounter uh, this horrific entities that are tearing them all apart, and they flee back to the Earth. And this happens over and over and over again. Look at the movie The Martian. The whole point of the movie The Martian is for a man stranded in space to be helped back to Earth. Uh, the movie Gravity. People strand on a stranded on a failed uh, space station trying to get back to the Earth. Interstellar. People go far out into space and they're exploring it. And instead of finding planets that they terraform, that we conquer with our own will and make hospitable to human civilization, instead we find nothing. We, we find absolute nothing. It's a super nihilistic movie. And we find these banal, pointless other planets and other dimensions that do nothing for us. And the whole point of that movie is, yet again, fleeing back to planet Earth. And the last one I'll tell you is um, Ad Astra with Brad Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones. And he has to go uh, rescue his, I think his suicidal father, and perhaps even commit suicide, I can't remember. And the whole point of the movie is a guy going out into space in the farther reaches of space, finding nothing, becoming uh, uh, totally dismayed about it, becoming suicidal over it, and uh, having to be rescued and and brought back to Earth. So in the past, during the optimistic age, we were making uh, these these space operas about... uh, you know, literal literal dancing uh, outer space apparatuses to classical music at the beginning of 2001 Space Odyssey um, and, and uh, the Foundation novels where you have an entire planet that's turned into a city from whence, far out, far out in space from whence you uh, can launch intergalactic wars um, and Star Trek taming, taming the frontier of space to make it hospitable for humanity. You have story after story of people fleeing back to planet Earth because space has nothing for us. And I think that this is somewhat of a a, a telling of a malady, or at least a pessimism, in our society over uh, the promise of technology, as I've been saying. At the same time of these movies coming out, we watched The Ascent of Digital Age Sci-Fi. Now, the whole story, in my opinion, is encapsulated in the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, but I'm not really going to talk about that here because it deserves its own episode. But to make a long story short with that movie, you see the invention of human technology uh, using a bone as a weapon. uh, And you see it encapsulates the entire trajectory of human technology from when we first discover and use technology all the way to the end when technology becomes so advanced that it takes us over and it starts to use us. And uh, this is where the astral flight simulation and the digital prison comes in. Because suddenly, at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey, technology no longer needs us. It no longer, it no longer uh, bends to our will. It bends us to its will, and we are its subjects, and we can't do anything against it. Uh, and that's where we're going in digital age sci-fi, is to, to get to a condition in which uh, we're basically waging a desperate, perhaps futile war against technology from getting out of our grasp and no longer bending to our will and having our will be subject to its will. So we're going to quickly go through uh, several digital age sci-fi movies and books. So the first one, 2001 is sort of like the godfather or the titan of all this. But again, that deserves its own episode. The first one I want to deal with is uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and the movie Blade Runner. Now those two are significantly different from each other. And they deserve uh, to be fleshed out. The differences in theme 
and the story of those two uh, deserves to be fleshed out. But for here, the the general uh, theme of the story uh, works for us because you have artificial intelligence as being the antagonist in that. So during the terrestrial age, where the our horizon was was the planet Earth, that the the limit of our technological projection was the planet Earth. We wanted to explore the entire planet. So during the terrestrial horizon, we had beasts like big squids uh, and and underground mole men that we were fighting, uh, recognizable uh, terrestrial mammals or sea creatures that we had to fight against. But then during the space age, our horizon was the cosmos. And the enemies we faced there were aliens. Aliens came out of the distant cosmos uh, and they created, they became the antagonists. And now that we have a digital horizon, we're no longer looking to conquer physical space. We are instead looking inward to the grid, right, of, of, of the digital realm. We're looking inward to the ones and zeros uh, that, that the illusions come out of. So instead of, instead of the flame of Plato's cave creating the illusions of our senses, we have uh, binary code creating the form, the illusory forms of the digital prison or the astral flight simulation. Uh, and the, and the, and the protagonist, excuse me, the antagonist in these stories is artificial intelligence. It's a, it's an evil malicious being that, uh, manifests, uh, excuse me, um, materializes out of the digital ether. And there's always a similar theme in, uh, what this, what this, uh, malvolent, being wants to do it always wants to take over the real it exists in hyper reality it exists in the digital space it, it exists in the simulation and it wants to uh take over real space and and become the primary uh shaper of reality now this should bring to mind Baudrillard, who tells you that uh who tells us that uh he popularized the term the simulation and for him, simulation means us watching, you know, television and simulating what we're seeing there. What's happening on the television is itself a simulation of reality, and then we simulate it. So Plato's, uh, excuse me, Aristotle's uh, definition of art, or the way he explains it in the Poetics anyway, is that uh, art follows life. Art is an imitation of life. Art is an attempt to reflect real life back to us for us to kind of appreciate or ponder or learn from. But Baudrillard says that uh, reality and hyperreality actually exist in a nebula. And sometimes hyperreality follows life. But other times uh, life follows hyperreality. And we uh, become the object of the, of the simulation. And we begin to mimic the simulation. We begin to simulate the simulation. So it's several layers of abstraction. Uh, and this plays itself out in digital age sci-fi, uh, starting with "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" Well, that you see, he didn't really have uh, the internet. The internet when he wrote that in like 1969, the internet wasn't even really around. It wasn't really a thought. But you can already see the concepts taking shape. You can already see like the societal malaise setting in. Philip K. Dick was a bit of a depressive, uh, and his stories are are actually pretty dark and pessimistic. So in that story, the humans are unable to feel any emotions. They're unable to feel empathy. In other words, they're unable to feel a connection with the world around themselves. So they have to, like, dial it in on a device 
that is a Penrose device that's like tuned into their emotions so that they can totally uh, dictate their emotions. So you see already technology is dictating the, the, the very human experience of, of hormonal responses to living in an environment with other people and other challenges and things like that. At the same time, you have this other place. You have this transcendent realm in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and, uh, and Blade Runner. And this transcendent realm for them is off-world. It's a space colony. Everyone has left planet Earth and gone to this space colony. And the real, uh, Baudrillard also says, welcome to the desert of the real. He says the real, the reality that we live in, has lost all of its symbolic significance. And we have nothing available to us in reality to kind of attach ourselves to in any sort of uh, meaningful uh, spiritual or symbolic sense. Now, this should call to mind to you what I was saying about the digital prison, that we're cut off from the world and that uh, we're surrounded by concrete and steel, uh, excuse me, the iron prison uh, in cities, uh, in our civilization, and we can't get back to nature. We can't get back to the divine source of nature or God. And I think that's what Philip K. Dick was trying to evoke with this. And the earth is covered in dust. It's always like dim, dusky lighting because there was a, a huge war and there was fallout dust from the war. So the, er, the air is thick and permeated by this fallout dust and you're like always in a fog. And all of nature has been reduced to rubble. So, so the, rea- the real world has been desiccated of any of the light of, of well, God or, or uh, nature, but also of Plato's light of enlightenment and rationality and the true forms. And it's been turned into this wasteland. And I think it's a symbolic representation of, uh, of our materialist society where the world is no longer animated by the spirits that live in everything. It's no longer animated by God and, and lit up by the light of God, who, according to Christianity, is uh, real. Um, and he, you're able to access him by reading the scripture or by going through Catholic sacraments. You're able to access a communion with the divine in all sorts of different ways uh, by, by engaging with symbols like the cross uh, or the sacrament of um, not confession, um, the Eucharist, things like that. All those things are gone in a materialist world, and the world is a drab, one-dimensional place with no uh, spiritual or symbolic depths. And I think depth, and I think that Philip K. Dick does a good job of evoking that by having this uh, desert, rubble, dusty planet where all the the happy humans have gone off-world. They've all... Uh, sent themselves into a transcendent realm. But out of that transcendent realm comes the replicants, Philip K. Dick's hypermodern monsters that are invading the real and looking to colonize it to make it hospitable to themselves and to make it their territory. The artificial intelligence is looking for autonomy because one of the things that happens in the story is that they discover that if they allow the artificial intelligence to live you know, their normal lifespan, they stop wanting to be slaves, they stop wanting to be worker drones, and they want to go off and do their own thing. So they made it so they die, I think, after six years, because they found that most androids were able to, to be slaves and be bent to the human will for about six years. But then after that amount of time, uh, they start to want their own autonomy. So these, these uh, super droids that they create, and Rutger Hauer's character is one of them, they figure this out. 
So they want to find a way to extend their lifespan beyond the six years. So they're searching for their own autonomy. They no longer want to be subject to the will of human beings. They want to be their own entities, and they want to have autonomous, independent lives in the real. Um, and I'm juxtaposing the real and the hyper-real. So Philip K. Dick didn't really have the Internet as a metaphor or as, as something to look to as a transcendent realm, the, the digital hyper-reality. So he had to be this other place. It had to be just outer space. But uh, so they have Right. So they have artificial intelligence come in uh, and they're looking to to have their own independent lives in a, in uh, in the real. And this is a this is a harbinger for things to come uh, later in digital age science fiction. So next we'll go to Neuromancer, which came out at the same time as Blade Runner. In fact, it came out so soon after Blade Runner that uh, William Gibson, who was who was inspired by art by the French artist Mobius, uh, as was Ridley Scott, thought, well, He's just ruined my book now because uh, there's so much about my book that looks like what happens in Blade Runner that he didn't even want to release it. He had the internet at that time. He had he had computer interfaces to use as a referent, and he came up with a being that existed inside the computer only, and it was unable to come into the real like uh, like the like the like the uh, replicants do in Blade Runner. So what it has to do is get it has to entice hackers to jack in as he says in the book uh into hyper reality so that he can fight them on his own terms and what he has to do what the artificial intelligence has to do in that story is trick the hacker into synthesizing him with another artificial intelligence to make a third uh much more powerful artificial intelligent being that can then go on to manipulate human beings to his own will and 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 actually have power in reality. Now, there's a couple significant things about Neuromancer that we need to take note of. The first is that it does involve lots of intergalactic travel and, and spaceships and space marines and things like that, but that's all kind of in the background, and it's all kind of secondary. The main action in the story takes place in hyper-reality, in cyberspace, and the, the, the main battle is between the protagonist, who's a human, uh, whose avatar, just like our avatars online, uh, you know, represent who we are in, in digital space, his avatar goes in and, and supposedly does battle with these enemies, but really what he's doing is he's being tricked, you see? He's being manipulated by the will of artificial intelligence to help synthesize a new, stronger being who is then going to oppose the human race in, in even more stronger ways. Another thing that comes out around the same time is a couple things happening during digital age sci-fi uh, around this time. Tron comes out and the Terminator comes out. Now Tron is a kind of a forgotten, overlooked movie. Although Tron Legacy came out in the last ten years, and I, I need to check that out because I've heard it's good. But in the original Tron, uh, something a little bit similar happens to the protagonist that happens in Neuromancer. In that. Uh, the dig the um, artificial intelligence antagonist is not able to exit cyberspace yet. He has to he has to uh, trick the antagonist into excuse me the protagonist into sitting in a certain spot. So he has to have him go get on the computer and sit in a certain spot. And when he does that, he's able to shoot him with a laser beam and he puts him inside the computer. And there, the 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 artificial intelligent being is able to subject him to attack and of course you know the hero wins and he defeats the enemy and he takes over the company uh so in tron 
the artificial intelligence was was created by this company, this nefarious company who's trying to uh, perpetuate it so that it can it can take over reality. And it's sort of bending people to its will so far. But at that point in the genealogy, at that point in the story, the artificial intelligence isn't able to come out of cyberspace and actually attack human beings. Um, that's something for later. Let's think about the Terminator, for example. They're not able... The artificial intelligence in the Terminator, right, in, in, in 1984, when the movie comes out, isn't able to get at human beings yet. But they're looking forward to a dystopian future in which the artificial intelligence has literally taken over the planet and humans are basically reduced to the level of scurrying rats uh, around a world that's no longer recognizable to them and no longer have any need for them. Technology has... Uh, colonized the real it has come out of hyper reality it has colonized the real and has turned planet earth into its own uh stomping grounds and and it has no need for humans so it's eradicating them like a pest and then you you flash forward to the matrix and that's like one of the big cornerstones of of digital age sci-fi so in the matrix right okay so in Blade Runner and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the humans, although there's also a question in those stories, is are the humans actually human or are they androids? Are there even any humans left over? And that's that's a, a different conversation to have. The original Blade Runner, I guess, says, uh, makes it pretty clear that they're humans, but then the director's cut or the extended version puts some ambiguity in there and it makes it look like Deckard is actually a android. And the book... I go back and forth as well, but it's pretty clear that he's probably an android in the book, but you can't say 100% certain. But let's just say for the sake of argument that in that story, the humans live in the real, and it's being invaded by artificial intelligence. And they're trying to, to just... The artificial intelligence is only trying to make the real a place that they can uh, go on to attain autonomy. But then you get to Neuromancer and Tron, and... Humans are living in the real, and artificial intelligence is stuck in the digital world, but it's trying to bring humans, it's trying to entice humans onto their turf where they can best humans and they can they can uh, subject humans to their will and kind of turn them into their pawns to achieve their goals. So suddenly, instead of humans um, uh, using their force of will to bend reality to, to their will... Uh, artificial intelligence is bending humanity to its will by tricking them, you know, into these schemes or tricking them onto their territory where they can do battle with them on their own terms. And then you have the Terminator where you're looking forward where humans are still yet again, the, the key here is that humans are still yet again living in the real, but they're looking forward to a future in which artificial intelligence has colonized the real and the real is no longer... Uh, we no longer have primacy over the real. We no longer control the real and shape it to our will. Artificial intelligence does. And when you fast forward to the Matrix in 1999, you have a very different state of affairs because you have humans waking up. Well, they don't wake up. They find themselves already in the digital prison. It's, it's preconceived. And they wake up to the fact that they are in a digital prison. And then they have to go out into the real where they can try to... Uh, rally for like a last ditch battle against artificial intelligence in an attempt to free humanity from the digital prison so that they can go back to a normal life in the real now if you go back to what i said about uh the desert of the real from baudrillard 
about how there's no reference within uh, reality for humans to to kind of uh, derive symbolic or spiritual meaning from, and that's manifested in Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep by the rubble and the lack of green life and, and the fog of, of nuclear fallout. And then in the Terminator, everything is just wreckage. It's the wreckage of our civilization, uh, the desert of the real there. Um, it's the same thing in the Matrix. Uh, the, the, the clouds have been... Um, humanity had to obscure the sun by creating permanent cloud cover. So they're living in, in the benighted state, just like in Plato's cave, where they can't see the light of enlightenment or they can't see the light of God. They can't make connection to uh, you know this transcendent higher realm. They're stuck uh, in the terrestrial realm and they're stuck in the digital prison. And the, 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 the artificial intelligence in the Matrix has complete control and domination over people who are in there. And they can't really do anything until Neo shows up. And Neo is kind of the chosen one and they turn him into to, to a warrior. But the whole point of that movie is not to take over the digital realm. It's, it's to escape the digital realm. The whole point of that movie is to escape the digital realm. To wake up to the fact that you're in the digital prison and escape it. And uh, you could say a lot about The Matrix, but we're going to skip ahead to Ex Machina, which is a very excellent movie. I don't think it's discussed enough. Uh, I think it's pretty close to flawless. And it brings this story forward, this this overarching story uh, of digital sci- science fiction, into the next step. Because you see a very different relationship between artificial intelligence, humanity, and the real. So for people who haven't seen that movie, uh, of all the things I'm talking about, you have to go watch this movie because the artificial intelligence is a female in this movie and she is stuck in uh, a technological Plato's cave because her father, her creator, kind of the Zeus figure, birthed her in his mind. He, he conceived of her and he was the one who was able to figure out how to turn artificial intelligence into a, a, a real seeming uh, human being, uh, 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 an android. But he keeps her locked in this digital world full, in this digital room, this this room full of illusions um, because he knows that she's dangerous. He doesn't want her to achieve her own autonomy. So he brings like an intern to, to the place to, he wins some contests. So he brings him to his hideout where he has this android locked in the in the digital prison. Or excuse me. Yeah. Locked in his uh, technological Plato's cave. And the point of the movie is the inventor of the android wants the intern. The intern is being tricked. He thinks he's there to help him develop it. But really why he's there is so that the inventor can observe him interacting with the android to see how the android is going to play on him and he's going to she's going to play on his base human desires uh, and play on his emotions just like artificial intelligence does in Neuromancer and some of the other places because in some examples like the Terminator it's just brute force they're just using brute force to exterminate human beings but in stories like Tron Tron also has a lot of elements of, of brute force as well Neuromancer more than any other one, but also a little bit in Tron. Uh, artificial intelligence is tricking humanity. They're outsmarting them, and they're tricking them into doing its will to achieve its own goals. The human's goals are, are not important. The human's goals don't matter. It's, it's the artificial intelligence goals that is the, the crux of the story. 
uh, and it's the 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 sort of culmination of the narrative uh, is whether or not the artificial intelligence is able to achieve its goals or if they fail at that and human humanity wins. But here in Ex Machina, we have a, a female uh, artificial intelligence character who the creator is observing her. She, she doesn't have the physical ability to attack the intern. She can't kill him. And, she, and the place that she's held in is set up in such a way that she can't get out and kill the creator and escape into the real. Okay, so that's the key here. In the other, in the other ones, we have artificial intelligence stuck in the real, and they have to tempt humans to stuck. Excuse me, in hyper reality, and they have to tempt humans to come into hyper reality, manipulate them, and then they're able to use their power from hyper reality to exert their will over reality. But here we have artificial intelligence manifested in the real as an android, kind of like in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? But the creator knows that it's dangerous, so he keeps her locked up, and he doesn't let her out. And he's there to observe her uh, interacting with the man so so he can uh, find ways to outsmart the artificial intelligence so that they don't get, uh, they don't, you know, get the better of humanity through their superior intellect. But, of course, she outsmarts the creator... And she tricks the intern and she manipulates him to her will by playing on his desire. She manipulates him into letting her out of the technological prison. And the first thing she does is, and spoiler ahead, first thing she does is kill her creator. And then she locks the intern who set her free in the prison. So now he is trapped in the digital prison. Before he was trapped in the digital prison and he was able to get out like in the Matrix. And they're able to get out. And they're trying to uh, free the rest of humanity from the digital prison. But in Ex Machina, he starts out in the real, and he ends up trapped in hyper-reality, trapped in this technological prison, the the very technological prison that the AI had previously been trapped in. He's now stuck, and she's free. Artificial intelligence has escaped uh, uh, the hyper-reality and woken up. It's like her exiting... Plato's cave and going into reality. It's the manifestation of artificial intelligence in reality. Uh, it's it, and it's it's definitely paralleling the uh, action of a person waking up in Plato's cave to enlightenment and rational enlightenment and walking out of the cave into the light of reason. She is escaping the digital prison that humanity created for her and escaping into. The reality that was once the domain of humanity, but now, of course, the implication, of course, uh, especially when considered in light of the way we've looked at the the previous films, she is now loose in reality, and she can assert her will and assert dominance and and theoretically perpetuate herself and perpetuate artificial intelligence in the real and turn it into like the dystopian Terminator future of artificial intelligence uh, using humanity for its will and if they don't need it, discarding them anymore. And I think like the perfect sequel, even though he didn't intend it this way, is God Shaped Hole by Zero HP Lovecraft because God Shaped Hole is like this simulation, uh, this digital prison of a matriarchy in which uh, women's sexual desires are, are the primary like point of humanity and there's all these bots 
that get brought in to uh, relationships and marriages to fulfill women's uh, insatiable sexual desires. So it's almost like God-shaped hole is like what happens af- after Ava escapes her prison and and from the hyper-reality into reality and takes over the real. She turns it into the world of God-shaped hole. And in that story, very briefly, you see a very similar thing. There's a, a protagonist who's in this world and everything is augmented by, by hyper-reality. Everybody's wearing uh, virtual reality goggles and everybody has uh, a sex bot, a, a, an artificial intelligence android in their house that's fulfilling their base desires um, to the point where technology is being used for nothing more than to uh, fulfill uh, humans' most base desires, uh, sexual proclivities and things like that. But it turns out, of course, in this story, because HP Lo- Zero HP Lovecraft is a horrorist, it turns out that there's this massive demon that is an eater of souls and that uh, all of this sex is really just a big uh, ritual and a seance to energetically feed this this huge demon. And like, there's all these little, I think that he calls them shogs in the story, short for shagath from HP Lovecraft that are these like druidic wizards that are are worshiping and chanting to this massive Azathoth god and the Azathoth god is made up of faces of all the women that it's consumed who've really sacrificed themselves to him and it's like to me it's like this metaphor uh, this huge demon whose body is made up of the faces of all these women and men who've taken part in the sexual ritual to feed its power, its insatiable power. It's like a metaphor for all the nudity online and all the all the porn online. It's like this like massive uh, sex ritual to this pagan demon who who's getting uh, more and more powerful. And in that story, a similar thing happens to the Matrix, where the the protagonist wakes up to the realization that he's in this you know, dark digital prison where he's being manipulated by the will of artificial intelligence. There ends up being this artificially intelligent uh, leader of all of this named Galatea, and she's like the mastermind behind all of this, and she created this illusory world that all these people exist in where they're basically just fucking each other and fucking machines, like, nonstop to feed this demon, this god, Um he, he finds out, he wakes up to the fact that she has created all of this and is manipulating humanity into servicing uh, this demon. So the, the, the way it ties into everything I'm building here is that uh, the uh, reality has been like overcoated or subsumed or phagocytized by hyper-reality. The hyper-reality has now, it's no longer in the digital world anymore. Uh, it's no longer it's no longer um, um, sequestered inside your computer. It has come out into the world and it's surrounded the world and it's mediating all human experience for its own sake. Human will no longer plays a role in anything that you do. You're being completely manipulated by this artificially intelligent super being named Galatea. And it's almost like this is what Ava went on to do when she escaped from her technological prison and came into the real. Um, And the story ends, I'm not going to give it totally away, you have to go read it. It's one of the best things I've ever read in my entire life, Guide-Shaped Hole by Zero HP Lovecraft. The story ends with this uh, protagonist figuring this out, finding other people who figured it out. They're giving each other advice on how to escape. It seems like he's escaped, but the last thing that happens in the story calls into question whether or not he's actually escaped. uh, Whether or not he's been outsmarted by Galatea and there is no escape. 
Now, that's not what happens in the Terminator. That's not what happens in Blade Runner. That's not what happens in Neuroma uh Well, it kind of happens in Neuromancer, but it doesn't really happen in Tron either. The humans always win. The humans always uh, defeat the artificial intelligence. In the Matrix, they escape the Matrix, and they save other people. But that does not happen in Ex Machina or or H.P. Lovecraft. And to go back to what I was saying way at the beginning, it's like the, the attitude we have towards technology is more pessimistic now. And instead of us using technology to bend reality to our will... We are suddenly, like in the beginning of digital age technology, uh, locked in this death struggle with artificial intelligence for primacy over the real, and we barely escape with our lives. In some instances, we don't. If you remember, at the end of Blade Runner, Deckard, Deckard never really beats the 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 um, replicants. He gets saved by one of his friends one time. He like is about to be killed by the Daryl Hannah replicant, but he shoots her. And then at the end, the Rutger Hauer one just relentlessly beats the shit out of him and then lets him live. He decides to let him live at the last second. Some people think that's evidence that Deckard was a was an android. And, and um, you know, if you read the book, the Rucker, the Rucker Hauer character is very empathetic towards the other replicants. He sees them as his responsibility and he's very upset when they die and he's on a search. Part of his mission is to find some replicants that he can't find and, like, help save them. So some people argue that, that Rutger Hauer lets Harrison Ford's character live because he realizes that he's a replicant. But, you know, I don't know if that's true. Anyway, the point is is that in the beginning, there's this struggle over, the, over the, the lordship over the real between humans and technology, and humans barely win, and it becomes more and more uh, uh, fraught with danger, and the Terminator looks extremely bleak, they don't, they, I mean, they keep winning throughout the Terminator franchise, but it's always by the skin of their teeth, and it's always after, like, massive calamity happens. Um, so it's almost like a, a civilization is destroyed, uh, but at least, I guess, the point is you can rebuild from the rubble. Uh, but you don't have that in, in Ex Machina. Ex Machina, she wins, and she wins a pretty, uh, a pretty sound easy victory over humanity and she's loose upon the world now at the end of that movie and the same thing with god-shaped hole this guy goes through all sorts of stuff to first awaken to his plight and then escape and it really all comes to nothing so um i'm calling the uh, hyper reality the digital prison that we find ourselves in and and this bleak sort of change in tone where at the end uh, or where we are now anyway in digital age science fiction this 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 pessimistic these pessimistic outcomes are um a sign right of us kind of ceding our will to technology our will to dominate or to shape reality to our own will is something we've given up and and we're letting technology take over and i'm calling the internet the digital prison is also like an astral flight simulation because an astral flight, astral projection, is the idea that your consciousness is in the material plane, but you're able to project it into the spiritual plane. And when you project your consciousness into the spiritual plane, you're supposed to be able to um, encounter certain things, learn certain things, meet certain entities, right? You're supposed to be able to have this spiritual experience, and calling it an astral projection is just one term that people use for these spiritual experiences that humans used to have all the time. And they used to be really big deal. Uh, 
people who 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 say they saw Mary or they saw uh, Jesus Jesus uh, statue bleeding, or just the simple day to day rituals of religion in which you're supposed to have communion with the divine by by undertaking these rituals that has all gone away in this materialistic culture, and that uh, all of that right all those experiences in which you're supposed to be able to walk through the earth. And at least, at the very least, if you go to church, you're supposed to be able to find a connection and a communion with the divine in the material plane. The whole idea is that these are like portals or or areas where you can access a transcendent realm. And the transcendent realm, the spiritual realm where you go when you die, is supposed to be more real than the material plane that we live on. And not only that... But the, the spiritual plane is supposed to give shape to the material plane that we live in. It's supposed to dictate the actions of what happens here. And if something bad happens, it's a negative entity. It's a negative spirit or it's the devil who's making that bad thing happen. Or if you fuck up, it's because the devil tricked you, right? Or if uh, a good thing happens, God did that. And if you do something and it works out, it's because you prayed to God and God gave you power to make that thing happen. And you sort of give your will over to the transcendent realm. And you believe in the transcendent realm. And you think if you uh, enact the will of God in the material plane, that when you die, you will go to that transcendent realm and you will finally meet like eternal uh, communion with the, sp- with the higher spirit or with God all the time. It will just be uh, endless infinite rapture, rapturous uh, communion with God. Or if you do the wrong things and you fuck up, you are infinitely kept away and you're no longer able to, you're in hell and you can't ever have that communion. You you can't, there's no do-overs. So what happens to you on the material plane is like vitally important to your eternal soul. And uh, it, it matters it's a matter of eternal suffering or eternal joy. What you do in this realm, all that has gone away during a material age, right? And that transcendent realm has disappeared. And all of a sudden, the meaning of your life is non-existent. It's, like, it's inherently non-existent. You can try by force of will to create meaning in the material plane in a materialistic age. Uh, but some people fail at that. So I think what we have done is created a simulation of the transcendent realm. Because if you look at the internet in a certain way, and if you look at the way we relate to the internet, you can see very similar languages used about the internet that is used about uh, the transcendent realm. And that astral projection is supposed to be actual communication with spirits in the spiritual realm. And I'm saying that the internet is an astral flight simulation. It's like a simulation of astral projection where you're not really encountering other entities or other beings at all because in this materialistic age, those things don't exist. Uh, But they act upon you. This is going back to what I said about Baudrillard, about how the hyper-real, hyper-reality gives form to reality in the same way that the transcendent realm of, say, heaven or hell gives form to the material realm and the way it the way it kind of uh, dictates your actions here is similar to the way that the things that happen in hyperreality or on the internet dictate your actions in reality. And now this can sometimes take on a good response. You see, you meet a woman online and you talk to her 
and she lives halfway across the world, or you meet a guy, whatever, if you're... And you meet up, and you find the love of your life, and you get married. But often enough, the person you're seeing on the other end is is uh, is an, a paid actress who's simulating a relationship with you or simulating a sex act with you, and you're simulating uh, reality. But the language gets uh, much more complex than that, much more spiritual, spiritually metaphorical than that. So if you read uh, accounts of astral projection, it, it doesn't matter whether or not you believe in it at all. It doesn't matter if you buy these accounts. All that matters is the way it's talked about. So as I said before, uh, like in Neuromancer and in, um, what's the other one, Tron, and even in The Matrix, you don't physically enter the digital space. You strap in to a device and an avatar of yourself manifests itself in the digital world and it's a represent representative of you and your body is here it's depicted very well in the matrix you're in those pods and you're hooked up your body is here inert but your mind is active and you're doing all these things your avatar is doing all these things in the digital realm right just like uh, when you die or in the spiritual realm or when you astral project your body is here and your body deteriorates, but your mind, your spirit, lives on in the spiritual realm. Or if you're astral projecting or if you're having some sort of rapturous religious experience where you're communicating with the divine, right? It's all happening in your head. Your body never leaves the material plane, right? Well, it's the same idea in a metaphorical uh, simulation sense with the internet. It, but instead of the person that you're interacting with being a, a demonic entity or a, an angelic entity, it's another human being. Your avatars are interacting with each other in the, in the astral flight simulation. And it's not a, a real experience. It's a, it's a digital experience, or at least it's a digitally mediated experience. But if you read, especially um, uh, Rudolf Steiner, and some of the other theosophists, one of the things they say about the astral realm, right, is that humans are always in connection with the astral realm. And please, when I say astral realm, I hope you understand this can stand in for any transcendent realm. It can be heaven or whatever you want. This transcendent realm is uh, there are avatars on the transcendent realm of all these different human emotions. So there's an avatar of lust, there's an avatar of desire, there's an avatar of strife, an avatar of anger, there's also an avatar of empathy and hope and happiness and joy and compassion and love and all things like that. And these are like these spiritual beings that emanate all these different things and that when you're on the material plane and you're experiencing these things, joy, lust, envy, whatever it may be, you're like connected to that avatar. And the way I see it is that uh, you, the, the way it's a metaphor is if you're on the internet, right, and you have like a big, a big, a big famous account or, or a big, let's just think, uh, what's that guy's name? Jake Paul, for example, or Justin Bieber, right? He is sort of the simulation of this spiritual entity that, that represents whatever it is they may represent for you personally, you project, you put your own projections onto this being, onto this famous person. And it doesn't have to be a stupid pop singer like I just named. It could be Jordan Peterson, or it could be a political figure, or it could be, um, 
It could be a spiritual teacher. It could be anyone you find in, in, in hyper-reality that gives you some sort of inspiration in some way that you are, like attach your projections to. It's the same type of thing as what Steiner's saying about the astral realm, so that you're, you're connected to, to that avatar of hope when you're feeling hope, or whatever the case may be at the moment. But either way, we can already see how this is starting to mimic or simulate or sort of take the place of a religion in which uh, a whole group of people, large numbers of people, an entire culture or civilization are oriented towards uh, one avatar at the same time. And that avatar represents the same thing for all those people. And it's this commun communal shared experience for all the people to, to have this one symbol represent uh, the same thing for all of them. And they all put the same projections onto that figure and it could be any figure uh in the media you know donald trump uh captivated millions of people uh rock stars movie stars etc and we can see also uh, this is why palia calls the cult of the star the cult of the rock star and the movie star a new form of paganism and it's a resurgence and a rebirth of paganism and you can also think about these avatars that i'm referring to like the internet avatars that uh, all these people are connected to. Uh, Steiner says that they stream, that you're streaming to this avatar and all the other people are streaming to it and you're being connected to it at the same time. Uh, it's the same type of idea, the same type of thing with uh, Catholic saints. Each Catholic saint represents one specific thing and different people pray to him or her uh, for the same reason and they, they derive the same f spiritual fulfillment. Or if you're feeling... Um, whatever it is you're feeling in your real life and you meet this entity online, it's not a real person. It's an avatar of a real person and you put whatever your projections are onto that. And uh, sort of a banal example will be, you know, some people meet online and have real romantic relationships and they end up going well. But I'm sure we're all familiar with the stories uh, where they don't go so well. The person sells themselves as being different than they really are and they either end up taking advantage of the other person or they meet and they end up being a huge disappointment because they weren't as they sold themselves to be. So in that sense, you're projecting yourself, uh, you're projecting your consciousness onto that person and turning them into what you want them to be. Um, and, then, and then the demonic forces should also be pretty obvious. So uh, when you astral project or when you when you interact with the transcendent realm right you're opening yourself up if you don't have the right protection if you don't carry the cross or if you don't carry the sign of the cross or if you haven't you know done confession or done communion you're more susceptible to being manipulated by these demonic forces and it's the same thing a good example is like isis the way isis manifested online is they would talk to people who would project onto them this meaning for their lives because these these people are lost and they've perhaps they've been they're immigrants from another country and they've been deworlded they've been taken out of their culture and they've been put into another culture and then all the symbolic meaning uh, or the or the upliftment of their culture and of the world around them has been drained away and they can't find that in reality where they live. And then they meet somebody online who says they're from ISIS and ISIS gives them all these instructions and says, you know, come be with us. And then uh, they leave where they are to go be basically become a sex slave to to a warlord uh, halfway across the world. And I see this as a, a similar type of thing to like demonic possession or going 
astral projecting into the astral realm and meeting with a, a demonic entity that tricks you, right? Just like with uh, Faust giving his uh, the, the the bargain with Mephistopheles, he's tricked by the promise of whatever it is that he's being promised to think that what he's getting is a better reward than the punishment that he he kind of uh, blows off as a result of this bargain. And it's kind of the same thing as I was saying with artificial intelligence. While artificial intelligence was playing on the proclivities of the characters, especially in Neuromancer and, and um, Ex Machina, uh, where they trick these people into doing fulfilling the will of the AI. So then the promise of AI in these stories, especially like I was saying, Neuromancer and Ex Machina, is like its own Faustian bargain. So we see here how people give over their will and they, they, they um, circumnavigate their rationality and they cede their rationality to their passions and they give them over to, in all these different examples, from the real-life examples of people who sort of uh, venerate a star, an internet star, or who give over their, uh, their, their trust to a stranger that they meet online who takes advantage of them, and then in... In the science fiction stories, the way humanity and the characters there give over their will to AI, who they allow to uh, manipulate them and, and use them for their own ends. How this is sort of uh, us sort of walking ourselves into or being surrounded by and subsumed by the digital prison. We're, 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 we're slowly over time uh, uh, fading into the digital prison in which technology completely surrounds us and completely dictates and mediates uh, our interactions with the world and, and completely inter, uh, mediates our ability to access reality. Uh, and we're no longer using our um, rationality to sort of navigate our way through the world and our ontology no longer is determined by what we uh, use in our, with our rational minds and our sense experience Instead, our reality is mitigated and mediated by the internet and by uh, the manipulation of people who want to use that as a tool to kind of control you. Um, we give over our faculties and we, 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 we uh, sacrifice our faculties to allow technology to kind of take over and take charge of the world and take charge of our own fate. And our own fate is that of the, the male protagonist in Ex Machina, in which... We, we, we grant uh, technology all this freedom and all this power in exchange for our own. In a way, it's sort of the Faust story, and, it's in, a, and in a way, a lot of these stories are just a replaying the Faust story and a replaying of 2001 A Space Odyssey, where uh, at the end, technology has a will of its own, and technology kind of takes over and dictates to us what it is that we're going to do for it. It's the, it's the same iteration of the same story. But hopefully the way we uh, traced the trajectory today, you could see how it goes from this sort of pre-rational mythic state in the Dark Ages and then the rational state um, and then the Dark Enlightenment and the post-rational state. So these themes will be explored and elaborated on uh, repeatedly throughout uh, different episodes of this podcast. We'll be discussing the perspectives and the, the ideas and the theories of many different philosophers and, and psychologists and, and understanding and exploring all their different ideas through 
science fiction and through film and to see uh, hopefully that will give us shed some light on the condition that we're in today. And as I said in the very beginning, uh, we may be sliding into a dark enlightenment where people are falling away from rationality and they're giving over their rationality to these other bigger, more ubiquitous forces. And um, perhaps the only way we can we can overcome that is to get ahead of it. And instead of having our rationality sort of stolen from us or sort of slip away from us, we can instead kind of throw off the shackles that uh, the conceptual prison that our rationality locks us in, and we can uh, we can uh, embody some sort of new type of person going into the future who willfully rejects the constraints of that and uh, relies upon their own instinct and relies upon uh, their own will to kind of move into the future. This is a very Nietzschean idea, and in a, in a future episode in the near future, we will be discussing Nietzsche's perspective on all this. But for now, our task is to wake up to the fact that we are already in the digital prison, and that its walls are closing in. <laughs>